Security threats are everywhere. But with Xfinity XFi, you're notified of threats to your in-home Wi-Fi network, so all your connected devices are protected. That's simple, easy, awesome. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit today. Restrictions apply. You are quickly running out of time. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the Nocturnal Readers Box, and you need to subscribe before the end of May if you want to get the June Box, themed The End Is Near, with items inspired by Brian Keene, Joe Hill, Nick Cutter, Mary Shelley, David Wellington, and more. Also, right now, before the end of May, you can get an exclusive special edition of Salem's Lot by Stephen King. This is a rare edition, only available at the Nocturnal Reader's Box and only available until the end of May. It'll be impossible to find after this month. Visit thenocturnalreadersbox.com. Get 15% off your first six-month subscription by using the promo code WEIRD15. That's all one word, WEIRD15. Sign up now at thenocturnalreadersbox.com. Every day, Comcast Business is helping businesses big and small go beyond the expected to do the extraordinary. Because beyond a simple transaction, there is making a customer for life. Comcast Business. Beyond fast. Take your business beyond at ComcastBusiness.com. Or click the link in the show notes. It really began with a short video, apparently intent on advertising some dresses. There had been others before, but it was a two-minute-long YouTube clip titled Date Outfit Ideas that set off the Internet's biggest ever mystery. In that video, 19-year-old Marina Joyce speaks to the camera about the clothes she's wearing, advertising an online shopping platform. But it was how she did it that concerned her fans. She appeared distracted and slightly confused, repeated herself looking slightly off-camera with some apprehension. Within hours, the video had become the center of a huge concern. Some argued, based on small clues in the video, that Joyce was being held captive and was forced to make the video, and even that the meetup she was asking fans to attend was going to be used by ISIS as a way of rounding up victims. Hours after the video was posted, fans started a hashtag that flew around the world. Hundreds of thousands of people tweeted it, and many called Scotland Yard. Those calls led officers to visit Marina Joyce's address at about 3 in the morning. They tweeted that they had found the YouTube star safe and well, and it did not respond to further requests for a comment. But that was far from the end of it. By the time that morning had arrived, the conspiracy had taken full shape. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. And if you're already a fan of the show, please 
share it with others to help bring them into the weird darkness as well. It's also extremely beneficial and appreciated if you leave a quick review about Weird Darkness in the podcast app that you listen from. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… Little girls often play with stuffed animals and invite invisible friends to their play tea parties, but one young girl's birthday gift of a tea set came with its own imaginary friend. Behind his quiet demeanor of a seemingly timid baker in Anchorage, Alaska, lurked a skilled hunter, and his favorite prey was women. On April 3, 1860, the legendary Pony Express began carrying mail between St. Joseph, Missouri and Sacramento, California. In October 1861, a short 18-months later, it ceased operation. Not only did the Pony Express die, but so did many of its riders. Do they continue to ride today as phantoms? Witch hunts and panic among communities are nothing new. But what happens when cyberspace intensifies the frenzy? We begin there now. So bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. For weeks, fans had been worrying about Marina Joyce. The 19-year-old beauty YouTuber didn't seem herself. Her once upbeat and quirky personality had shifted dramatically. Her videos were filled with silent stares and shifty off-camera glances. On July 8, viewers noticed a gun in the background of her latest makeup tutorial. They began talking about how she appeared frightened and distressed. Exactly two weeks later, Marina posted another video. Commenters were quick to point out the sprawling green bruises covering the back of her arms. They noticed that her eyes were wide and unblinking, and a finger briefly directed her from the side of the frame. Most worryingly of all, 13 seconds into the video, the teenager seemed to whisper the words, Help me. It took four days for the wider internet to fall into a frenzy. After a fan compiled a list of their concerns on Just Paste It, a site dedicated to sharing blocks of text easily, the hashtag SaveMarinaJoyce became the number one trending topic worldwide. When Marina then tried to arrange a 6.30 in the morning meetup with her fans, some speculated she was involved in a trap set by ISIS. Thousands of teenagers revealed that they couldn't sleep and were shaking from their belief that Marina had been kidnapped or was being held hostage. More than 60 people tweeted that it had caused them to have an anxiety or panic attack. The mood was one of hysteria. It felt like every wall came towards me and I couldn't get out, says Usha van der Malen, a 19-year-old student from Belgium who suffered a panic attack while following the hashtag and watching Marina's videos. I had to pause the videos to keep myself together and not burst out crying. I had to ask my mother to calm me down. It lasted a few hours." Vandermalen, 
had been diagnosed with social anxiety disorder and says she suffers attacks if something huge happens like this or if one of her idols dies. She says that for the two days that hashtag SaveMarinaJoyce trended, she only had three and a half hours of sleep. It made me feel very anxious as I felt I had to do something to make sure the girl was safe. The more I believed there was a scary figure abusing her, the more I got anxious. But the problem is there was no scary figure. There was no kidnapping. No abuse. The fears were all baseless. After numerous calls, the Enfield Police Department visited Marina in the early hours of July 27th and tweeted at 4.34 a.m. that she was safe. Marina herself also tweeted that she was totally fine. Despite this, the hysteria didn't abate. In response, popular YouTube creator and commentator Philip DeFranco landed an interview with Marina Joyce to get her side of the story, officially. He pressed her to explain the cause of the mysterious bruises that launched an entire social media campaign to save her life, and she offered this explanation. I went to the forest once, and I stepped over something, and I got really badly bruised, and I bruised quite easily, but I had quite a fall, and it wasn't very good, and so, yeah, because I like to go adventure in the park and do stuff like that, and I ended up falling over, and, yeah, basically that ended up happening, and it got me a load of bruises, and, um, yeah, I just ended up having all these bruises, and that's the reason why everyone said, hashtag save Marina Joyce, so that's how that happened. Her fans were not satisfied with her answer, though. Nor should they have been. A mere nine months later, Marina had a completely different explanation for the bruises and further clarified her odd behavior. In a five-and-a-half-minute video on her channel called Saving Marina Joyce, she said she was going through a hard time with depression during the hashtag Save Marina Joyce frenzy. She said, quote, The reasons why I did not give you an answer before was because I was not in the right mindset to give you one. I had to get better to give you an answer. I did suffer from depression. It was so bad. It hurts me to this day to think of all the reckless things I did that showed that I did not care about my life. Things that I would look back upon and feel so grateful that I'm still alive. I lived in isolation of what happened to me, of people not understanding what I was truly going through. In the video, Joyce also credits her fans with helping to turn her life around and take care of herself. She said despite how crazy some of the conspiracy theories were, hashtag SaveMarinaJoyce pushed her to get help. She said, I'm getting better now, which is why I decided to make this video. I feel so grateful for hashtag SaveMarinaJoyce because it did actually save me. But it seems the larger story isn't specifically what happened to Marina Joyce but the explosive reaction her fans had and the media frenzy it created thanks to one short two-minute video intended to sell dresses. This phenomenon is not entirely new, says Stefan Stieglitz, a professor of professional communication in electronic media at the University of Duisburg-Essen. If people get new information that is in contrast to what they believe, he said, then they tend to neglect this new information for as long as possible. In a 2013 paper on how emotions diffuse across social media, Stieglitz discovered that emotionally charged messages tend to be retweeted more often and more quickly. 
Emotion can be transmitted via computer-mediated communication and can go viral, he says. This is called emotional contagion. Emotional contagion isn't new, either. It's an age-old phenomenon whereby an individual's emotions trigger similar emotions in others. Historically, this has led to outbreaks of mass hysteria, such as the Salem Witch Trials. But on the Internet, the potential for hysteria to spread is even greater. There is a pressure on people to react instantly as this can enhance a person's popularity within a group, says Jackie Taylor, a chartered psychologist and cyber-psychology researcher and lecturer at the University of Bournemouth. This pressure exacerbates groupthink as there's no time to check facts or consider other explanations. If people think others have similar views or emotions, then hysteria can result as they confirm the accuracy of each other, and so emotions spiral. But the users of hashtag SaveMarinaJoyce didn't just feel panic and hysteria. By playing detective, those who shared theories and screenshots were allowed to feel another, very different but equally contagious emotion – pride. In all areas of our lives, we engage in a process called social comparison, says Allison Atrell, a senior lecturer of cyber-psychology research at the University of Wolverhampton. If a person compares themselves to someone who they perceive to be better able and then they beat them in solving a case like this, it makes them feel good about themselves. Social media makes this type of behavior affordable and accessible. The user doesn't need a lengthy education to become an investigator. It's all at their fingertips. This isn't the first time something like this has happened, either. After the Boston Marathon bombing in April 2013, users of the news and networking site Reddit banded together to try to identify the bomber using photographs, audio from police scanners, and CCTV footage. Just like with Marina Joyce, those involved felt an odd mix of both panic and pride. Being on the West Coast, I was far away from the hysteria on the ground, but I was caught up online, a 38-year-old Portland Redditor involved in trying to find the Boston bomber said. I think there was a frenzy in people wanting to help somehow. Terrorism is usually random and you cannot protect yourself. I think jumping online to track these assholes gives people a sense of control, writes the Redditor, who wishes to be identified only as Trey. It is clear that most of the people who wanted to hashtag SaveMarinaJoyce and Reddit FindBostonBombers were genuinely trying to help. Trey repeatedly writes how amazing it was that people didn't have to rely on news outlets and could discover and share things for themselves. At the time, other Redditors posted about how helpful it was to hear immediate information when they had family nearby. Still, Reddit didn't make history for how helpful they were in the case. Sudal Tripathi was found dead on April 23, 2013, eight days after being wrongly accused by Reddit of being the Boston bomber. The 22-year-old American student had been missing for a month prior and had likely killed himself before the accusations started. But for the four hours that Sunil was wrongly identified by the Internet as suspect number two in the bombings, the Tripathi family went through hell. Between the hours of 3 a.m. and 4.15 a.m. on April 19th, Sunil's sister, Sanjita's phone, rang 58 times. By 6.45 a.m., the family had received hundreds of threatening and anti-Islamic messages, despite the fact that they're not even Muslim. The Tripathis had been 
doxxed, meaning their private information had been published on the internet as a result of the online hysteria. There was a minority of voices being the voice of reason about not doxing people, writes Trey, which makes sense, but I think we're so sick of this terrorist stuff, people were like, I don't care, let's find these efforts. A little Donald Trump-style frenzy, let's get them. If it sounds remarkably like a witch hunt, that's because it is. This sort of thing has always happened in human history, says John Suler, one of the founders of cyber psychology and the author of Psychology of the Digital Age, Humans Become Electric. But cyberspace speeds up the process because these like-minded people can easily find each other and easily target someone, he says. Which brings us back to Marina Joyce. After the YouTuber posted a video claiming the whole debacle was a publicity stunt by her viewers, not by her, social media users dramatically turned on her. She too became the victim of a witch hunt as Twitter rapidly decided to change tactics and hashtag boycott Marina Joyce was begun. Hope you lose all your followers, you ugly bimbo, tweeted one user, who claimed she had kept him up all night worrying. The tide had turned direction, but the hysteria remained. Being part of a group empowers a person, says Suler. It can also result in de-individuation. The person goes along with the crowd and feels less responsible, personally, for the actions they take with the crowd. The delete button that came in handy for the many journalists who also accused Sunil Dropathy of being the Boston bomber also allows users to, if not feel, at least appear less responsible. The implications of this are huge. We live in a world where it's easier than ever for hysteria to spread, easier than ever to uncover personal information in order to target an individual, and easier than ever to remove ourselves from blame. Beyond the Tripathies and Marina Joyce, many people have felt the effects of these phenomena. Verinder Jubal, a Canadian Sikh man, was wrongly identified by social media as the perpetrator of both the Paris and Nice attacks. Tony, a 62-year-old RuneScape player, was wrongly accused of being a pedophile by the YouTuber Keemstar. Cries about the death threats he received in one of the most throat-achingly sad videos on the internet. A teenager in Ebden, Germany, was accused in a Facebook post by another teenager of being responsible for the death of an 11-year-old girl. As many as 50 people demanded the police hand him over to them even though he was innocent. The problem becomes even greater due to one of the other major prevailing habits of the internet – making stuff up. During the Marina Joyce case, many users shared photoshopped images claiming she had written, help me, on a box under her bed, or that there was the shadow of a man in her eye. There are two potential explanations for this type of behavior, says Taylor. Firstly, technology depersonalizes interactions and people do not consider how their actions will affect others. Other explanations relate to the personality, for example, narcissism or other underlying psychological problems of individuals. But the issue isn't really that bad people do bad things. Fake pictures and facts wouldn't have nearly the same effect if it wasn't for the multitude of well-intentioned people who share them. Truth, lies, and the internet is a 2011 report that examined the ability of young Britons to critically evaluate online information. Our research shows that many young people are not careful discerning users of the internet," concluded the co-authors, Jamie Bartlett and Carl Miller. 
much of the Internet has now formed islands of segregated opinion rather than flows of dissenting argument and engagement, reads the report. Within these often fairly closed communities, the two-way flow of information doesn't happen. The fact that social media users are neither confronted with nor seek out the truth only exacerbates hysterical reactions. As well as emotional contagion, a feeling of belonging, witch hunting, and the effect of fake images, there was one last factor at play in the Marina Joyce scandal. Marina is a YouTuber and, as such, a social influencer. Marketers have long since cottoned on to the power YouTubers have over their fans as their unique celebrity rests on the fact that viewers consider them their friends. Fans of popular media often develop parasocial interactions, i.e. individuals believe they have a personal relationship with a media character where none exists, says Bradley Oakty, an assistant professor at the University of Ohio who studies how technology affects the way humans interact. Parasocial relationships are likely stronger with YouTubers as they appear closer to their fans compared to characters in a movie or on television. Thus, one could imagine that those in parasocial relationships might react similarly to those in close friendships when they feel their relationship partner is in danger. In a social media playground that's ripe for hysteria, it may ultimately be people like Vandermeulen and the many other teens who lost sleep over Joyce who suffer the most. Joyce, though she didn't set out to use the situation to her advantage, now has more than 2 million more subscribers. Today, almost two years later, the insanity seems to have died down, but Marina is still very much affected by the events. Joyce now asks her fans to stop believing in any of the conspiracy theories that circulated in July 2016. She's doing much better now, she says, and she thanks her incredible die-hard fan base for much of the happiness she has found since. Keep listening, there's more weird darkness to come. Now, the last few days, I have been swamped with work. Not only do I have my normal podcasts, my voice work for clients, etc., there's also a brand new YouTube series coming soon that I'm a part of, which is also going to be sucking away a lot of my time soon. But And I can't afford to be without energy and focus, nor can I be afford to be without motivation. Fortunately, I found the solution a few months ago. It's dawn to dusk. Most people only need a single capsule, but I take two each morning around 8 a.m., and not only does it give me the quick jolt of energy that I need to get started in my busy workday, it lasts a full 10 hours. 10 hours. Your high-calorie energy drink is not going to do that for you. Totally safe, no calories to count, no salt entering your bloodstream, no shakes that you sometimes get with energy drinks, just the actual energy and focus you need to get the job done, day in, day out. If you find yourself struggling each morning as you start your day, maybe you find yourself dragging in the late afternoon, or maybe you're a night owl and you have a hard time keeping your eyes open and you still have work left to do, well, Dawn to Dusk could be your solution, and you could try it for yourself at BrickHouseWeird.com. It's a special page they designed just for Weird Darkness fans. That's BrickHouseWeird.com. You can save 10% off of Dawn to Dusk if you use the promo code WEIRD at checkout. That's BrickHouseWeird.com. BrickHouseWeird.com. Again, use the promo code WEIRD to save 10% off your bottle of Dawn to Dusk.
From the time I was little, I have always enjoyed reading. My mom said that from the time I could walk, I was constantly bringing books to her, wanting her to read to me. So it was no surprise that I became an advanced reader at an early age. I was about six years old when I discovered my all-time favorite book, Alice in Wonderland. It was still a bit advanced for me at the time, so my mom would read a chapter or two to me before bed every night. The idea of being able to slip into another world where you can talk to animals and flowers going wherever you want, whenever you want, just sounded awesome. Later on, when I saw the movie, I was beyond hooked. One of my favorite scenes was the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. They looked like they were having so much fun. I often imagined what it would be like to live in Wonderland and wished that I could. It was closing in on my birthday, and my parents asked me what I would like for a present. I quickly said that I wanted a tea set so I could have my own tea parties just like the Mad Hatter's. A few weeks go by, and it was finally my birthday. I remember how excited I was to play with my cousins and to have my first bakery-made cake. It was white with blue icing trimming, brightly colored flowers, and my name in the middle as I was over the moon. My parents always had to be really careful with money when my brother and I were growing up, so this was a real treat. After we all finished eating our cake, Mom brought out my two gifts a medium-sized box and package. I quickly tore back the wrapping of the package and found a brand new Nancy Drew book. I was so excited I squealed with excitement and thanked my granny over and over as I hugged her tight. I went back to my last gift, opening it a bit more carefully, hoping that it was my tea set. I didn't want to break it. Just as I had hoped, a beautiful white porcelain tea set with rose print was wrapped carefully in brightly colored gift tissue. I could not stop grinning and probably for the first time that day was speechless. I felt like the luckiest girl in the world. The next day, Mom helped me set up my tea set and had warned me that it was not a toy at all but was very fragile and she would trust me with the set in my room but only if I was extremely careful. I promised her that I would, so we put the cups on tiny saucers with a fine gold-colored trimming placing the final piece in the center of my small flower-shaped table, my tea set. I begged her to have a tea party with me, but she said that she had cleaning to do, and I knew my brother didn't want to play with my dolls, so I sat my favorite stuffed animals around the table, and the party commenced. I gently picked up my cup and sipped my tea, apple juice more like, and talked and laughed with my plush friends about how we had to go find the Cheshire Cat and that the Red Queen needed to be nice to Alice and all the other animals as well. An hour or so had come and gone, and Mom called us to the kitchen to have lunch, so I excused myself from the table and promised my stuffed animals that I would be back soon. While we were eating lunch, Mom went in the back bedroom to do something, and I saw one of my bears fall out of the chair. I knew not to leave the table without asking, so I quickly finished my SpaghettiOs so I could go see what happened. When I went into our room, the bear was still on the floor, but nothing else was out of place. I noticed it felt chilly in there, and I asked Mom if we could shut the air off, to which she said it wasn't on. I told her it was cold in our room, so she followed me in there to check, noticed it was, but didn't know why. She told me to help her clean the tea set, put it away, and then suggested we go outside to play. A week or so goes by, and I overhear my mom talking to Dad 
about seeing a little girl sitting in front of the closet in their room in the middle of the night, and when she sat up to check it out, thinking it was me still feeling half asleep, the little girl was gone. Dad reassured her that it was just a dream and not to worry about it. Though she was not convinced, my mom has always been very in tune with spirits, and she was certain that was what the little girl was. Later that day, I asked my mom if I could have a tea party, and she hesitantly agreed and took it down from the closet shelf and helped me set it up. I'd been playing for a while, but for some reason I felt nervous. I could sense that someone was watching me from my bedroom door. I looked across the way, into the kitchen, which I could see from my play table, but nobody was in there. It was then that I saw a tall shadow pass by our room very quickly. I thought maybe our dad had come home early, so I went into the living room to see him, but the only person in there was Mom and my brother Chris. I asked Mom where Dad went and she told me that he hadn't come home yet. I was a little confused, but I went back to our room to play with my tea set while I still could. As soon as I rounded the corner, I froze. A little girl with long, wavy blonde hair wearing a slightly Victorian-style light pink dress with a high, lacy collar was sitting at my table. Do not drink this, she said, pointing to my teacup. You will get sick. I ran back into the living room and told Mom what I saw. She followed me into our room, but the little girl was gone. Mama, she was sitting right there, I said, tears running down my face. She really was. Mom hugged me until I calmed down and asked me what she looked like, and I told her. She looked startled and asked me if she said anything, and I repeated it back to her. Mom stopped and thought about it for a minute and decided we should put it all away for a while. It was close to a month before Mom let me play with the tea set again, so I was pretty excited while I was playing, drinking my tea. I felt a hand wrap around my arm and once again saw the little girl. I told you not to drink that. You will get sick, she said, panic ringing heavy in her voice. I screamed for my mom who came running into our room to see what was wrong. She came back, I cried, and she hurt my arm. I held my arm out to my mom to show her, but you really couldn't see anything. So we put the tea set up and didn't take it down for years. When I was around 14 years old and had a better understanding of the spirit world, I asked Mom why she had put it away for so long. Mom explained that she was convinced that the little girl was tied to the tea set, that the little girl told her one night that she wasn't trying to be mean to me, she just didn't want me to get sick like her because it hurt really bad. We both think that the little girl was poisoned with a drink of some sort and that the cup probably reminded her of the one she had used. Seeing that Mom had gotten the tea set from a nice antique shop, there was no real way of knowing the history of where it came from. I used the tea set as decoration in my room for the longest time, but unfortunately it broke during one of our moves because the box was dropped. I've not seen the little girl since then, and neither has my mother. In the 1960s, a man named Robert Hansen decided to make Anchorage, Alaska his home. The seemingly timid baker, who soon owned a shop in an Anchorage mini-mall, quickly became known for his skill at hunting, 
a hobby he enjoyed on the side. In fact, he set several local records. It was not known until later, however, that he also hunted and killed at least 17 women between 1971 and 1983. His particularly brutal exploits and his trade gave him a well-known epithet after his crimes were discovered – the Butcher Baker. Not all of Hansen's victims were ever identified or indeed ever found. When he was arrested, a map marked with numerous X marks was found behind the headboard of his bed. While Hansen would later help authorities to track down many of those marked spots and uncover the bodies buried there, there were some that he refused to identify. Some authorities believe that Robert Hansen was responsible for more than the 17 deaths to which he confessed, let alone the four for which he was convicted. He also admitted to raping more than 30 women during the same decade. Because Hansen tended to dispose of his victims' bodies in isolated areas only accessible by boat or bush plane, the first victim of the Butcher Baker to be discovered didn't show up until 1980 when construction workers found the body near Eklutna Road. Ultimately dubbed Eklutna Annie, the woman has still not been identified. In his 1984 confession, Hansen claimed that she was his first victim. Hansen might have escaped justice even longer and probably gone on killing had it not been for 17-year-old Cindy Paulson, who escaped from Hansen in 1983 as he was trying to load her into his plane. Paulson later told police that Hansen had offered her $200 for oral sex and then pulled a gun on her as she got into his car. He drove her to his home where he chained her to a post in the basement and proceeded to torture and rape her before taking a nap on a nearby couch and then loading her back into his car and driving out to the airport. Upon arrival, he said he planned to put her in his plane and take her out to his cabin. While Hansen was getting the airplane ready for takeoff, however, Paulson made a run for it. She managed to flag down a passing truck driver in spite of the fact that her hands were cuffed in front of her. Disturbed by her appearance, and no doubt by the handcuffs, the driver gave her a ride to a nearby hotel at her request, but then called the police shortly after he had dropped her off. In spite of Paulson's testimony, however, Hansen wasn't immediately arrested. When questioned by the police, he claimed that Paulson was just lying to try to cause trouble. What's more, Hansen's friend, John Henning, provided him with an alibi that for the moment cleared Hansen of any suspicion. However, Detective Glenn Floth was, even then, on the trail of a killer. He just didn't yet know that it was Robert Hansen. Floth had been placed on a task force to inspect several bodies, including Eklutna Annie, which all seemed to have been the work of a single killer. He had worked with an FBI agent to draw up a psychological profile of the suspect, which suggested that the man he was looking for was an experienced hunter who had a history of being rejected by women and that he might stutter. This description fit Hansen to a T. As a young man, Hansen had been afflicted with particularly severe acne, which left his face scarred. He spoke with a stutter and had felt shunned by the girls at school. As an adult, he moved to Anchorage, Alaska with his second wife with whom he had two children. Though he had several run-ins with the law throughout his life, neither his wife nor his neighbors suspected him of being a brutal serial killer. Armed with the psychological profile, as well as Paulson's testimony, Bloth was able to get a warrant to search Hansen's home, along with his plane and cars. 
In Hansen's house, the police found souvenirs in the form of jewelry he had taken from the women he killed, along with a map showing where many of the bodies were buried. Hansen initially denied his crimes but ultimately confessed as part of a plea deal. He is said to have abducted the women, raped and tortured them, much as he did Cindy Paulson, before taking them to the woods and hunting them down with a Rutger Mini-14 rifle. The grisly exploits of the Butcher Baker proved fertile ground for books and even film. Walter Gilmore and Leland E. Hale wrote one of the definitive books on the subject, Butcher Baker, The True Account of an Alaskan Serial Killer. The 2013 film The Frozen Ground was also based on Robert Hansen's killings, with John Cusack playing the murderous Baker opposite Nicolas Cage as an Alaska state trooper and Vanessa Hudgens as Cindy Paulson. The real-life Robert Hansen was sentenced to 461 years in prison and, additionally, life without the possibility of parole. He died in prison in 2014 at the age of 75. Wanted Young, skinny, wiry fellows not over 18 must be expert riders willing to risk death daily, orphans preferred. On April 3, 1860, the legendary Pony Express began carrying mail between St. Joseph, Missouri and Sacramento, California. In those days, St. Joseph marked the further point west for American railroads and telegraph lines. Mail traveled west by stagecoach or wagon, a trip that took at least three weeks. Government and the Western settlers demanded a faster form of communication, and the Pony Express was born. It was believed that these horsemen could carry the mail as far as California in half the time it took letters to travel by stagecoach. It was a daring plan, and a dangerous one. The trip west in 1860 was fraught with every sort of danger imaginable, from bad weather to rough terrain, Indian attacks and bandits. Many riders did not survive. Nearly 120 riders were hired, half of them riding east and half riding west. The route followed the Oregon-California Trail across Kansas, along the Platte River in Nebraska, then west by way of Fort Kearney, Scotts Bluff, Fort Laramie, South Pass, Fort Bridger, and Salt Lake City. The trail then crossed Nevada and ended in Sacramento, California. Relay stations were set up every 10 to 15 miles along the trail, and a rider would give a loud yell when he rode within sight of them. He would then switch horses, and a new rider would take over about every third station. During the 18 months that the Pony Express was in operation, the young riders carried approximately 35,000 pieces of mail over more than 650,000 miles and only lost one sack of mail. While the Pony Express dramatically improved the communication between the East and West, it was a financial disaster for its backers. Hoping to gain a lucrative government mail contract, the Central Overland California and Pikes Peak Express Company spent about $700,000 on the project, losing about $200,000 of their investment. The owners failed to gain the government contract, and when the telegraph was completed in October 1861, the company declared bankruptcy and closed down. The Pony Express only thrived for a short time, but it left an indelible mark on American history, including on the history of American hauntings. 
after the mail service closed down, most of the stations on the route were shut down. They fell into ruin or were used for other purposes. Some of them earned a ghostly reputation. One such site was the stable where the Pony Express began in St. Joseph, Missouri. For many years, the station was rumored to be haunted. Stories were told of shouts and cries, the stomping of horses and empty stalls, and the clang of a blacksmith's hammer on steel. It was as if the station was still in operation. Over time, the stable was replaced with a new visitor's center and museum, and the old building was torn down. The mysterious sounds have since become another part of the storied past of the Pony Express. The Pony Express station, most famous for its lingering spirits, is also the only one that still stands today in its original location. The Hollenberg Station, located a few miles outside of Hanover, Kansas, is now a state-owned historic site and museum, but for many years it was a thriving business in the region. Built on Cottonwood Creek in 1857 by Jarrett H. Hollenberg, this station was the largest stop along the Pony Express route. Intending to capitalize on the many wagon trains passing this way on the Oregon-California Trail, Hollenberg's six-room building initially served as a grocery store, tavern, living quarters for the station owner and his family, and an unofficial post office. Three years later, it became a Pony Express station and later a stagecoach station. After the town of Hanover was founded in 1869, residents made a conscious effort to preserve the building and raised the money to keep it just the way it had been after the Pony Express had delivered its last letter. And perhaps it's that dedication that has kept the past alive, so to speak, at Hollenberg Station, with lingering ghosts. As the years have passed, the stories continue to be told about the ways in which the Pony Express riders, Teamsters, and Stagecoach drivers have remained behind at the station. Perhaps their indomitable spirits are embedded in the wood of the station itself, or perhaps their ghosts still ride the plains, dreaming of the days when they formed a vital link between the East and West. Regardless of why they stay, there seems to be little doubt that those who have encountered them believe they are here. Visitors and staff members alike claim to have heard the sounds of pounding hoofs, thundering through the night, and the distant sounds of young men calling out as their phantom mounts near the station. Are they truly echoes from the past or the result of lively imaginations? I can't really tell you for sure, but deep down, I guess I'd like to think these boys are still out there somewhere, reliving their glory days when neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom or Indian attack stayed the couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. If you like what you hear and you want to hear even more, consider becoming a patron. I post commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness and bonus materials as well, including chapters of horror and paranormal books I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes, or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. If you like the show, please leave a review in Apple Podcasts or the podcast app that you listen from. Doing so helps the show be seen by others, and I might read your review here in the podcast. Have you signed up for the Marler Sheet? It's my free newsletter where I hold contests, giveaways, and more. You can sign up for it right now at WeirdDarkness.com or look for the Marler Sheet link in the show notes. 
Do you have a dark tale to tell? You can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. All stories from this episode are purported to be true and you can find links to the sources or original articles in the show notes. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. Find links to both in the show notes. I'm going to be traveling around the Midwest a lot in the weeks and months to come. I'd love to meet you if you can make it out to any of the conferences or festivals that I'll be a part of. June 16th, I'm going to be on location at the DuPage Comic Con in Wheaton, Illinois. June 22nd and 23rd, I'll be at the Haunted America Conference in Alton, Illinois. And then June 24th, I'll be in St. Louis as part of the St. Louis Mighty Con. You can get the details on all of these events that I plan to be at by clicking on Events at WeirdDarkness.com or click the link in the show notes. I'd love to meet you. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and more. I've got links to all of my social media at the top of the page at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. How does one frame a masterpiece? If it's a painting, some wood and gold leaf will do. But what about a masterpiece of the edible variety? Like Boar's Head Oven Gold Turkey. Crafted from a family recipe, seasoned with savory spices and then slow roasted until it's fork tender and brimming with flavor. So what could frame such a masterpiece? Perhaps a little bread would do. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere.